0: This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing here at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. We're just back in the office from the National Council of Teachers of English Conference, where we had a really great time meeting with our educator friends. We also had a great time with a lot of the authors that were with us at the conference. We're pleased this month to offer an extra-large version of the LBYR podcast featuring Bethany Dini-Mergia, illustrator of Violet and Victor, write the best ever bookworm book, Karen Harrington, author of Courage for Beginners, and Jennifer Rush, author of the Altered series. We hope you enjoy them. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and we're excited today to bring to you a special new voice to the Little Brown Books for Young Readers School and Library podcast and that voice is the voice of Bethany Dini-Bergia, illustrator of, I think, one of our favorite picture books on the list this year. Violet and Victor write the best ever bookworm book. Welcome, Bethany.
1: Thank you, Victoria.
0: Well, Bethany, will you start out um, by telling us a little
1: bit about the book? I'd love to tell you a little bit about the book. Violet and Victor is a story about twins who write a story together. On the simplest level, um, that's what it is. Violet wants to write the best ever book, and she's very proud of her skills. She's a great speller, she loves to read, she loves to write, and she says repeatedly that she's not bossy, so we can make of that what we want. It's one of the most endearing parts of her character for me, though. And her brother, Victor, just really wants to play with his worms, but Violet manages to cajole cajole him into um, writing along with her, and they create a really wonderful story together.
0: I promise that this is not one of my favorite books um, because he is named Victor, but that does not hurt. I promise that this is not one of my favorite books because he enjoys playing with with worms and that is also one of my favorites. Um, Also this is not one of my favorite books of the year because he is wearing an orange shirt and it is my dream as a redhead to wear an orange shirt one day. I fear it shall be denied. It is one of my favorite books of the year because, as the Kirkus Review says, it is clever. Uh, And I think much of the cleverness of the book is built into the illustrations. The text is delightful, but you have put quite a bit more of a rich, interesting life into the book than what is indicated by the text alone. So can you tell us how does an illustration begin?
1: Well, whether... The final product is going to be traditional or digital. The illustration always begins for me with sketches on paper. And for a long time, I did those sketches in pencil, but lately I've even been doing them in ink just because it allows me to be more gestural and move more quickly and not even think about erasing. So that's always the place where the actual image begins. But I'm going to back up a little bit and talk a touch more about where a book begins for me because I have a background in art direction. So I'm always thinking about the final format of the book. I'm always thinking about the fact that a book has page turns, that a book has uh, words and images that work together. And so I tend to begin, before I even get to the process of doing much sketching, to think about the spreads of the book and to work on those in thumbnails. And that allows me to see how a story works over the scope of 32 or 40 pages, however many we're working with, And it allows me to think about what kind of drama can be built between pages as we turn the page. So that's basically where I start. And because my background was in magazines and catalogs, as a matter of fact, and I spent many years designing catalogs thinking to myself, all I really want to be doing is making children's books. I'm wasting my time. This is ridiculous. But the fact is that I actually learned a lot of skills that were super helpful for me as a children's book illustrator, because you're really... Even in catalog design, learning where to draw the reader's eye, learning how to tell stories across pages, even if it's just that you're selling products. So I do tend to think about all of those elements as I start the book rather than later on, because even though um, you have to make each single image wonderful and beautiful, they have to work together to tell the story as a whole.
0: I kind of love this answer. Um, One of my favorite books that I go back to uh, often is actually not a children's book. It's actually uh, about uh, excavating Greek art in Rome during the Renaissance uh, and how excavating that art, finding that art that had been taken to Rome in Roman times, how when the Renaissance uh, artists found this Greek art, the sense of movement of that whole piece sort of communicated itself to them and took them in a new way visually in their own art. So you thinking about illustration begins with the project as a whole, takes me back to that idea of you're thinking not of an individual perfect illustration, you're already thinking about the the narrative as a whole. Absolutely. So you're thinking about the project as a whole and say the story of Violet and Victor, and, and they're there to tell a story. Violet, because she's the best speller, and Victor, because he's perhaps slightly more imaginative. We'll go ahead and say it. <laughs> how then did you start thinking about the look of these illustrations? The look of these characters and how they interacted?
1: Well, I will say that from the beginning, we knew this was going to be a very collaborative project. It's Design-wise, it's complex. We have two narrators in this book. Those narrators narrators are each telling a story within a story. And we had to determine how to weave the design and illustration together. So uh, for me, I the first thing that I heard from the art team at Little Brown was, we saw some sketches of yours that we really like. And in the past, I've always worked in watercolor and pen and ink. That's the only medium that I've ever chosen to work with, but they had seen... Sketches that I had done for another book, and said this might be an interesting direction. So my first stab was to think about it in terms of colored pencil. I couldn't really see a vision that worked with just um, just graphite pencil. So I did some colored pencil images, and then came back to the team. And from there, we really we felt that we needed to incorporate more of the uh, more of the kind of love letter to books and stories and libraries. So it was really a very collaborative meeting at that point, and we decided, okay, we love the graphite pencil line. It's it's very expressive. It has a sort of elemental feel. It lines up really well with what's going on in the story in terms of Violet and Victor actually writing. It's very raw in the same way that what they're doing is very raw. But we also need to bring in this wonderful um, reference, the wonderful references in this book to storytelling and to libraries and collage really felt like it might allow us to do that by working with ephemera all kinds of library ephemera and anything just any sort of gems that we could find from antique books and whatever other material printed materials that we could come up with and that's where the process began it was very different for me than anything I've ever done before and it was extremely experimental in the past once I've gotten to the sketch stage I had a pretty good vision of where things were going from there And with this book, it was, you know, it was sort of flying on a wing and a prayer that the sketches would develop into something lovely. And one of those reasons was because we were using 3D art, and there was no way to really represent that in the sketches. Uh, But I used a lot of cut paper sculpture and origami and all of those pieces, just continued to build all those raw materials on my desk for many, many months until they finally came together in the images. And I think they work, but it was a very different process than what I've done in the past.
0: Well, as a former um, archivist and preservation library librarian, um, yes, I did literally spend many years working in a tower uh, in New York uh, with very old uh, books. Uh, I cannot approve or condone this activity. Do not rip apart your books, people. Um, this... The the art itself is really interesting, and I love how you you integrated the collage the collage elements with the graphite. This brings up again the question. That sounds like you did a lot of research for this project, and that you ended up at a very different place in this project than where you started out. This is this unusual.
1: Absolutely, very <laughs> unusual. Um, a lot of research happened here in terms of the research was. Basically, collecting—I'll call it more collecting here—that I had to come up with enough raw materials to see where the book could go. And you know, as I went through that process and started trying new things, started experimenting with the origami and the cut paper sculpture, the images did did start moving in completely different directions. So it was a very different vision than what I had seen from the beginning.
0: Now, were these antique books? Were these just how did you have these antique books, and how did you select them for sacrifice?
1: I, so I guess I should, to make you feel a little better, Victoria, I should tell you that most of them were um, Xerox copies of antique books. Most of them. So very few books were actually harmed in the making of this book. I will tell you that.
0: I appreciate your your reassurance on that point.
1: But as for the antique books, they have been in my possession. I, I have many, many, but I had one collection that's sort of a funny story of Antique books that I purchased when I was about 20 years old, and they're a collection of children's stories from the early 19, early 20th century, and they're fantastic. They're filled with beautiful pen and ink, um, all kinds of beautiful pen and ink art and wonderful typography from that period, and I really drew from those. They had actually been in my friend's garage in New Jersey for many, many years when I, li- when I lived on the East Coast mm-hmm. and left them there. I said, you know what, I don't have time to take them to the West Coast with me right now. And then they showed up, uh, you know, on my doorstep a few months before this project started. So it seemed to be one of those very serendipitous things where I thought I was meant to go to those books and use those books.
0: That is a fortuitous uh, a fortuitous sequence of events. Yeah. And, and so I will then choose to celebrate the transformation of these books into a new uh, and different art form. So we've talked a little bit about the research and we've talked a little bit about the collaboration on this book. Um, I think my que- my next question is slightly different than what I had planned because we talked about the final format mm-hmm. But how do you think about the reader or the viewer of the book as you're constructing the images? Because, you know, a book has height, it has width, it has thickness, it has time of reading, and it has meaning. Do you take into account the reader when you're constructing the project?
1: Of course. It would be unwise not to think about who's going to be reading the book. I will stop you here and say, you think it's
0: weird. I've met people who don't think it's weird.
1: (laughs) Perhaps that's my perspective as well as a parent who Mm -hmm. has read many, many millions of picture books to my kids. So one of the things that I always do is think about picture books as being for parents as well, because they're normally shared between an adult and a child. And I think it's very important that both parents and children can find each other or find themselves in a book.
0: So there's an opportunity, not simply for the child to create meaning, for himself or herself as she's hearing the book read, or as he's seeing, as he's reading the book himself, but also that opportunity for the child and parent or adult to create meaning between themselves uh, in the act of sharing the book with each other. I really kind of like that uh, Absolutely. very much. And I wish more uh, authors and illustrators would ponder that element. So Bethany, we're going to surprise you. Oh, great.
1: I love Um, surprises.
0: Oh, I don't know about this one. Um, There are occasions when people come to the office and we do ten questions in one minute. They never know what the questions are in advance. And no one has ever done it in a minute.
1: Uh, But I have
0: here the questions.
1: The gauntlet has been thrown.
0: And now that we are trapped in a hotel room uh, at NCTE, and I have you at my mercy. Are you ready for the t- challenge? Ten questions in one minute.
1: What are the rewards if um, I attain this this unattainable goal?
0: <laughs> there is possibly some coffee in your future.
1: Okay, then I, I'm ready.
0: Okay. First job. Picking up cookies in a cookie factory. I have visions of Lucille Ball you and should. Ethel, Lucy and Ethel at the chocolate factory. Uh, was that
1: difficult work? Very difficult. And I had the night shift as well, the graveyard shift. So there is a night difficult. shift at the cookie factory. Indeed, yes. Why am I surprised
0: at this? Yeah. Well, oddly enough, this leads us to the second question: What is the most delicious food you have ever tasted?
1: Oh, I will follow that theme: coconut macaroons by far. Were we separated at birth? It's possible
0: because that really oh, did, mm. with the chocolate dip. Oh, that yeah, definitely, <sighs> definitely potato. Or potato? Potato. The first book you remember reading?
1: Dr. Seuss's collection that includes The Sneeches. I don't know what the official title of that would be, but The Sneetches. That word has such a good mouthfeel, don't you think? Absolutely, the
0: yes. How do you like your steak? Medium, rare, or well done?
1: Oh, I'm going to disappoint you on this one, because I'm usually vegetarian. So I don't like my steak.
0: That, that's not disappointing. Okay. That's not disappointing. We're, we've been waiting for a vegetarian. Here I am. Favorite character from childhood?
1: Probably the Sneetches. I adored those characters.
0: Hindenburg or Titanic?
1: <laughs> Titanic.
0: What is your least favorite color? Puce. <gasps> Here is where I gasp. Because after so long of waiting for someone to say puce, we have had two puces in two days. You're kidding. The very delightful Frank Viva Mm -hmm. did the same quiz yesterday. And his least favorite color is also puce. A word with an excellent mouthfeel.
1: And yet that color is just... It's the color of ick. Ick. There must be puce in the air. That's all I can say.
0: I know a few places where that could be said. <laughs> there we go. Most
1: dreaded household chore? Oh, boy. I'm, I'm debating here. I'm going to go with sorting my children's clothing to determine what doesn't fit from the past season. It's one of those chores that just sneaks up on you as, this, as the drawers start overloading and you know you have to do, and yet it's just just difficult. It's my most dreaded.
0: I would agree with you on that, but for different reasons when I no longer fit my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Bethany, Dini, Margia, Marguia, who or what is your nemesis?
1: Ooh, that's very tricky. My nemesis. I've never really contemplated that. Uh, I am going to go with winter as my nemesis. Because I really miss the sun in the winter
0: i I, I will validate you in that uh, winter is my oddly enough my least favorite, although I do like the dark and I like wool clothing so oddly enough winter is my least favorite. Bethany, thank you very much for accepting the ten questions in one minute challenge i I feel that you did well you you took up the gauntlet and you give interesting. Uh, Questions, I want to talk to you more about certain things, but not while we're being recorded for posterity Mm -hmm. or for human resources purposes. Uh, This has been me, Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing. Along with me has been Bethany Mergia.
1: Thank you, Victoria.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and we want to welcome you to the latest edition of the Little Brown School podcast. We're here today at the National Council of Teachers of English 2014 conference with middle grade author Karen Harrington. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, Karen, uh, you've done two books with Little Brown, Sure Signs of Crazy and Courage for Beginners, um, which is your most recent book. Can you tell us a little bit about Courage for Beginners? Sure.
2: Courage for Beginners is really a story about a young girl who is um, figuring out that there's more than one way to look at the world. She's um, Misty Murphy, and she's just starting seventh grade with her father in the hospital, leaving her at home with her sister and her severely agoraphobic mother. And they really have no strategy to get food or anything else that requires driving in a car. And at the same time, her one friend has, um, like a lot of friends do, changed over the summer and has decided he's going to have a social experiment so that he can be the cool kid, leaving her behind. So she's starting school with some really great challenges at the beginning of seventh grade. So it's really a story about her... Figuring her way out, navigating um, through some family situations and some school situations, and really finding her own voice. Well,
0: Karen, I love your books because they have such a beautiful tone to them, um, and I have known that you do not. You draw on autobi. Your books are not autobiographical, but they do draw on real-life events uh, in their plotting. Can you talk a little bit um, about this? How you take the initial event that, that spurs your imagination and how you transform that event into something for your novel?
2: Well, actually, with Courage for Beginners, I knew that I wanted to draw on some family history. So, it, like you said, it's not strictly autobiographical, but I wanted to draw upon some truths. I think that um, all families... All people and families come to that realization at some point that their family is not like every other family. And as a young person, I stumbled upon that discovery with my mother, who was agoraphobic. And so I really wanted to write about it, to explore that for my some of my own answers. I think a lot of writers do that. So that was a sort of a starting point um, and uh, I realized for example in the story Misty's mother is a prolific painter and um, she gardens all the time and that was true of my mother too. So those were some starting points where I was thinking about um, what would it be like for a mom to be agoraphobic in today's day and age and how would a young person approach that. And I looked through a lot of family photos and looked Look back on it with a lot of compassion, a lot of interest, and that started kind of the ball rolling for that story.
0: Karen, as you were doing this research into your own family history and looking at these pictures and and looking back at these memories, did you come up with any answers for your own life that you? put into Misty's
2: reactions? Yes, very definitely, because my mother passed away about 10 years ago, so I haven't been able to ask her a lot of questions. So in exploring Misty's character, I wanted her to be able to ask her mother a lot of these questions and figure a lot of these things out. So I think, yes, I figured out a lot more about... um, what my mother was attempting to do when she grew so many vegetables, for example. Back then, as a child, I was embarrassed that we were that yard that kind of had a farm in the backyard, but now I, I looked at it after writing the story that that was her contribution to the family. She couldn't go to the store, but she could provide that for us, and also with her many paintings, that was also kind of a source of strangeness. I didn't know anybody else's mother who was, who was painting murals on the wall that didn't match anything else, but I think now that was her way of bringing the outside world in so yeah that was that was a nice revelation for me in writing the story. I love that idea
0: of a character whether that's your mother or whether it's Misty's mother who is dealing very constructively or as constructively as she can. With her situation, that yes. she's looking for additional ways to be creative and to be positive within the family setting.
2: Yes, I think that's true of all all mothers who love their children. They want to contribute in some way, and um, and certainly that was. I think Misty's mother really embodies that. She's a loving mother, um, even despite you know her her tremendous fear. She's a very loving mother, so she's going to take care of them in the only way that she really can. Um,
0: one of your recurring themes, boast, both both in sure signs of of crazy. I said that right, yes? Yes, you did.
2: <laughs> it's a I tongue very, twister.
0: It is a tongue twister. Sure signs of crazy and courage for beginners is the theme of how adult choices shape the lives of children. And these aren't necessarily choices about the children. Right. Adults make choices every single day for their own lives or for their own uh, relationships or their own jobs that impact the lives of their children in the family or children that they know absolutely and our our children whether or not they participated in that decision have to accommodate those adult choices how do you see the protagonists of your not of your novels becoming aware of this pattern of adult choices and and responding to adult choices that that's something
2: victoria i i love Playing with that topic, because for in my own experience and the experience of many others I know, there are adult issues that are visited upon children far too early. And so, someone has said it very well before that that's that time in your life anyway, where you're going to have one foot on the playground and one foot into the adult world. And I really love exploring that because I think that those are defining moments for young people. Um, and I, I think Sarah Nelson and Misty Murphy, I, what I like about them is that they are discovering like so many young people that their family isn't normal or their family has something unusual or different from the rest of the world. And this is the turning point in their life where they're deciding for themselves, is there a different way to look at the world than my family of origin? Certainly in Misty's case, she's looking at her mother's fears, and Misty has a great dream of traveling to Paris someday. Well, how will she be able to travel if she's paralyzed by those fears? So by the end of her journey, she's realizing there's more than one way to look at the world. So that's that's how I like to approach those stories, because I think that there's a lot of young people out there that when they confront that their family of origin is, is different from their best friends next door, then they stand there and think about it and evaluate it, maybe for the first time in their young lives. And one of the things I love about
0: both these books is that I look at middle grade as the place where children become aware the world around them does not exist just because it is that way. Yes. The world around them exists because adults decided that it would exist in that way.
2: Yes, yes. You're exactly right. And that and that's all where, you know, I think you grow up and you look back on your choices and your parents' choices and it's such a revelation as a young person when you can say, I can choose differently. You know, I don't have to use the same product. I know for me, it was a revelation when I went to a friend's house and they made macaroni and cheese, not from a box.
3: There were, oh, no, no, no. There I'm were sorry. other
2: ways that it could be done. And even that, that's something so simple, but I think that's so universal that you go, if they're doing that differently, what else is going on behind the scenes that might be different from
0: my family? I accept your very serious and valid point, but I wish to assert for all listeners that macaroni from the box, mac and cheese from the box is the best macaroni. It's, I am terribly sorry for all of you who are I don't, not experienced. I don't know. Not. We might
2: have to disagree on that. I agree with do you on most things, Victoria, but on, on this point.
0: Do you make mac and cheese at home?
2: I, I do not. I do not. I'm s- surrounded by very ah. good cooks who make. Life-saving macaroni and cheese, in fact. I want to taste There's,
0: life-saving, okay. non box mac and cheese. Okay, work. okay. And, it will and, change
2: your whole point of view okay, on I, macaroni and cheese. I accept
0: that, that okay. somehow this may happen. But yes. to go back to being serious, I mean, your point about first perceiving that choices can be different and young people can choose for themselves, that takes us, that exploration takes us to the edge of young adult, where we see the themes there of, uh, of young people actively deciding family of origin, which is a phrase I love and I will be stealing from you okay. immediately <laughs> versus family of choice. So I think your books really do tread that cusp of young adulthood Thank very you. well.
2: Thank you. Cusp of young adulthood. I like that. I'll steal that from you as well.
0: You are more than welcome. I give it to you freely. Thank you. No felonies involved. So you've written about the power certain words hold for children. Um, for example, in Sure Signs of Crazy, there are certain words are bad words and certain are good words, and, yes. and I think we're talking about triggers a little bit. Trouble sure. words. How do you communicate the power those certain words hold for children within your novels? When that is such an interior, personal reaction.
2: You know that uh, writers, I think, their their own first research about um, any topic and so uh, when I was thinking about Sarah Nelson in particular in Sure Signs of Crazy where she's collecting um, a diary of trouble words, words that she knows have elicited a certain response, um, that's a, that has a very personal connection to me. So I, I came to think about Trouble Words. Actually, I'll tell you a story that actually when I was writing about that, that I remembered from um, my childhood. I remembered the day that it was, uh, I must have been in, in fourth or fifth grade, and all the young girls were wanting to get little gifts for their for each other. And it, me and my humble allowance, I didn't have a whole lot. So I came home one day, and there was something on the counter, and I called it cheap. But what I meant was it was inexpensive or it was something that was affordable with my humble allowance. And I got in big trouble for using it in that way. And that I remember that showing me that there was a power of words and there were precise words and there were words that you had to be careful about how you use them uh, because they might elicit the wrong reaction that you didn't intend. So I started thinking about the weight of words and we talked a lot about the word hate in my family growing up, that hate, you don't hate a banana. A banana has never done anything to you, but that hate can lead to a lot of really serious and dangerous things. So um, th- those were some of the things in my family that just made me choose words, love words, but want to select them. There's more than one word for something that's inexpensive. So um, so I, I remember that as a young person, and I still see that like in my young children today, that they're learning about the power of words. So that's definitely something that I wanted to bring to the character of Sarah Nelson, who also, books are her friends. She's going to be around words all the time. She's going to be very choosy about words.
0: I love that point, particularly in the time in a time where we are in a in a heavily um, in a world in a world that's heavily social mediated by social media and the constrictions mm-hmm. that social media place on language, and perhaps not uh, giving us like the full range of fluency mm-hmm. uh, or or subtlety in language, and reaffirming for children that it isn't just an emoji. Right. As fun as well, I I get, you know, some of the emojis are fun, but I don't understand them. And I think they're really reductive. So mm-hmm. I appreciate in a in the place of your novels where the power
2: of subtle shadings of language. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean there's so many there's so many great words to choose from that um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I am uh, so happy that you were with us today. What will you be up to next?
2: Well, right now, I'm working on a new book called Mayday, and it is the um, product of one of my favorite characters from Courage for Beginners. I got very interested in one character and, and wanted character to know is? what was what was his life. What? His this? that's a, that's a clue to Ooh. who he is. It's all about Wayne Kovac, the um, fact reciting smart nerd and i mean that in a positive way using my words selectively but i mean nerd in a very positive way uh so it's all about his story uh we look forward to that although i
0: i do admit i was hoping that May Day referred to the international communist holiday just because that's how we oh go.
2: oh okay well no i that's not my territory really People well, trying to fit in and discover themselves. That's more That's, more, mean, me. That, that's, more, me. that's right. more. me. I think so. we'll take it.
0: Okay. Well, Karen Harrington, thank you so very much for spending some time with us at NCTE and on our podcast today. This has been Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing for the Little Brown School Podcast. Uh, Karen,
2: say goodbye to everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Little Brown School podcast. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I am super excited today to welcome our guest, Jennifer Rush. She is the author of two books with LBYR Altered and Erased. And I uh, love this series. It is high octane, it is fast paced, it's action, adventure, but it has thoughts. It has real interesting thoughts in them, which we like. We like action with thoughts. Um, these are um, books that I think teen girls and boys will love. There, I think, a little bit of something for both of them. Jennifer, welcome, and will you tell us a little bit about the series? Hi,
3: uh, thanks for having me. Um, Altered, the Altered series starts with Altered, and it tells the story of 17-year-old Anna, whose father is a scientist and works for this shadowy organization known as The Branch. And he runs this program with four genetically altered teen boys who have no memories of their life before the lab. And when they stage an escape, Anna goes with them, and she realizes that perhaps she's connected to the boys and the program more than she realized.
0: It's very Jason Bourne-ish. Which I love because the born books are some of my favorite, and I do love books about blank uh, identities and amnesia, and I like uh, I like books with sudden twists and reversals, and I love books that take you on almost a joyride of action. So thank you, Jennifer, for writing these books, which I so enjoy reading. <laughs> So one of the classic hallmarks of young adult is the confrontation of authority. Uh, usually this is like a super controlling dad or a really anal retentive mom or maybe a coach that has, uh, you know, issues with winning. Um, but you have really taken it to the extreme here uh, with the branch. Um, how do you see the confrontation of authority? And do you think this makes your book fit in? books fit into a dystopian model or is it something more? Well, I feel like it's
3: more of a thriller than it is dystopian. Um, I wanted it... When I set out to write it, I wanted it to feel like it was a story that could take place right down the street from you and you wouldn't even realize it. And, you know, I mean, it could be dystopian as far as this this entity that kind of is all controlling and the people are fighting back against this entity, which is the branch. As far as confronting authority goes... I feel like with the government nowadays, it's kind of like there's a lot of regulations and rules, and they're trying to, you know, come into your, your lives a little bit more. The whole big brother uh, scenario, which is very similar to what's going on in Altered. These boys, their whole, at least half their lives have been controlled by the branch, and they're sick of it, and they want to fight back and fight for what's right and fight for their freedom.
0: Well, I love the idea that they're Stepford—they aren't—they're almost a Stepford family until they completely bust out. <laughs> yes. Who runs the branch, or is that
3: a spoiler? It's technically a spoiler. Um, it, all that information comes out in erased. So, if you—if you've not read erased yet, I, I don't want
0: to say just in case. I have read erased, but I was wondering <laughs> if she would she would you know be sneaky with you all there. So it's on, a, it, it's a big reveal. So it is, it is a big reveal. Another major YA theme is identity. And again, you've taken a more modern, updated, almost scientific tack with this subject by introducing the element of scientific or genetic manipulation along with the exploding hormones. So it's sort of like a super modern mashup of everything that could go wrong with teen life. Again, this is really amped up treatment uh, of the uh, identity issue, but do you see some sort of connections with this story and how teens think about their appearance and self-presentation as a reality? Definitely. One of the things
3: when I first started writing the book, you know, and the boys didn't have their memories of who they were, their lives before the branch. I, I really wanted to research, you know, experiment with if you have no memories of your life, are you still the same person? Do you still, are, you know, if you like coffee, Do you still like coffee if you don't remember you like coffee? Little things like that that make you who you are. And with the boys, I I did give them things that I knew were parts of their lives before the branch that came through in who they are in the books, even though they don't
0: realize that those are elements from their life. So you're really talking about the nature versus nurture question in a very extreme way, Mm -hmm. but then... Really, how much of their nature is really that natural? Or is it supernatural? Because... Yes. Well, in again, avoiding a spoiler.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The fact that they've been genetically altered does make them a little bit more supernatural, I think. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. Because I've always loved paranormals. But at the time, the market was kind of saturated with that whole thing. And I wanted to get a different spin on it. And this was as close as I could get to four teenage vampires making them genetically altered instead of making them vampires. Um, I really love the whole super strength and, you know, really smart and clever and strategi- strategizing, you know, how to take out the entity or, or whatever. Like for, with Cass, for instance, he's, you know, they're all super strong, but Cass takes it in an entirely different way because he's so goofy. Like he'll just randomly climb a tree. Because he can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like how you're talking about this. Uh, it adds an extra layer of the of the book for me because, you know, I can think of the of the boys as almost these children because they have no history that they know about to draw on. So they're a little bit of a blank slate. But on the other hand, they're they're stronger than the adults around them. Yes. So they're almost super heroic in that way. So they're supermen almost more than adults in their physicality and that's such an interesting dichotomy to explore um how have you been developing this in the third upcoming book which you should get totally (laughs) when it comes out well this is that's something that's kind of touched on and
3: erased as well because the branch wants the boys back because they are stronger than men should be and they realize that it's kind of, the program's kind of gone awry. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're worried about what that might mean for them. Could the boys take over the, the branch? You know, could it spell trouble for, you know, the government? Um, and with Reborn, the third book, it's more about the past coming back uh, for one of the male characters, Nick because his memories are starting to come back, and he's, he's not sure if he... He's, he doubts whether or not he's a good person, and he feels like some of the things that have been done to him maybe have broken him, and he wants to find out whether or not he's, I guess, redeemable.
0: I like that. Again, going back to the theme of confronting authority, because one of the great things also going on in YA Lit is how teens develop their own morality and their own agency. And you give an interesting portrait of how each of these four boys and our main character, the girl, mm-hmm. uh, go through and think about how these adult choices have given them the lives that they know, but how are they going to react to that? So it's, it's really a huge thrill ride. Now, you mentioned supernatural and paranormal, and so here we come to our last question, which I guess, you know, we have to ask... <laughs> To love triangle or not love triangle?
3: Well, this is kind of a complicated question and answer, I feel, because I I feel like there's a time and a place for love triangles. I, for one, am a fan of love triangles, if they're done right. I feel like there's a, there's a way to do them, and maybe... I, I'm not sure if I would be able to do them justice. That's why I haven't written one yet, I'm afraid. Um, in... In Altered and Erased, in reborn as well, uh, there are two male characters that a lot of the fans, readers of the series uh, really like, Mm -hmm. and they want them to be with Anna, the main character, which I can understand. I, I love both those boys a lot, but I wanted to explore a relationship between a female character and a male character that was not intimate at all. There was, you know, no sexual tension between them. Because I don't feel like there's a lot out there. You can still be friends with the opposite sex or the same sex and not have it turn into an intimate relationship. And that's something I I wanted to explore in Erased and especially in Reborn, the relationship between Anna and Nick as
0: best friends, almost like sister-brother. I think actually that's so refreshing because we do see... A lot of love triangles, <laughs> and and it's interesting you bring up your fans and fan responses to these characters. Do you, in, in constructing this relationship between Anna and Nick, that is not a sexual relationship or you know a romantic relationship, um, are you thinking about fan reaction or fan? Um, I spoke recently with a, with another author, uh, and and she was struck by. The visceral reaction her fans have had to story the story taking a different turn than what they wanted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As you've been pretty, you know, brave in in defying the expectations of the genre, ha- have you had any in- reaction from the fans to this choice? And how how have you dealt with that?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there are half of the readers who are happy that Anna's with Sam and she will probably always be with Sam. I think they would be really angry if I threw Nick and, or anybody else into the fold. But then I have a, I, I, I've seen a lot of readers comment on how they're really hoping that Anna, uh, you know, has a romantic relationship with Nick. And I, as a, as a reader, I, I could see why would they, they would want that. I kind of want that sometimes just because I like writing, you know, the romantic scenes or whatever and the tension between people uh, but I feel like it needs to stay true to the story and it needs to stay true to Anna. And for Anna, it's always been Sam. And I, If I
0: threw anybody else into the mix, it would change everything about it and her. I, I love that answer because I think your commitment to the logic of the characters is is really important. Because I think sometimes we're not seeing commitment to the logic of the characters. There's Their actual psychology. So thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. Now, is there anything you can tell us about Reborn that will, um, because I've not been allowed to see it yet. Oh no. Is there anything you can tell us, particularly me, about Reborn that will make me crazy until I read the book?
3: Well, when I first set out to write the third book, my editor suggested I add Nick in there as a a point of view character so it would be a dual point of view between nick and another female character and i was immediately against it because i didn't think i could do him justice he's a very mysterious character and i felt like trying to get inside his head and write from his point of view would take away some of that mystery i wasn't sure if readers would like what went on inside his head for instance you know because he's kind of an angry character Uh, But when I started writing him, I immediately fell in love with him all over again. And writing him has been one of the best experiences I've had yet. So I'm hoping that readers will really love getting kind of this behind-the-scenes look at Nick, who he is, what his hopes and fears are, and you know, like the things he struggles with on a daily basis, because a lot of his memories are coming back, and he's... He's remembering the things that he went through before the branch, which is a lot of hard stuff for anybody to deal with. And, of course, there's some romance. <laughs> Everybody's got to have a romance. Nick has his. And is, I'm the, very...
0: is the branch going to get theirs? Well. The look on her face knows, <laughs> if I tell you that, I have to kill you.
3: <laughs> I, wa- I want to say, I feel like some... Do you feel happy at the ending? Satisfied with the ending? You yes. Get? I'm very satisfied with the ending as far as Nick and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the other, the new female character. I feel like they got a happy ending. And I, I will say that I feel like an entity like The Branch, the things that they've done, they do have it coming. And I, I feel like I, I can say eventually it will all come crumbling down.
0: Well, Jennifer Rush, thank you so much for being with us. We are currently on a very noisy NCTE convention floor, and you did a great job at your session yesterday, and you've had some good signings and meeting people, so thank you for coming to NCTE, Thank, Thank you. Uh, What are you working on next?
3: Well, I am currently finishing up on uh, the third Altered Saga novella, which is told from the point of view of Chloe, who is a female character in Reborn. Excellent. She's like a side, secondary character. And besides that, I'm working on a just-for-fun
0: fantasy, dark fantasy. Ooh! <laughs> well, wow. we are excited to have Jennifer Rush with us and to hear a little bit about what she's going to be doing in the future. This is a great voice in the YA market for teens to enjoy and, and value. Again, it's the Erased series: Erased, Altered, and soon to come out, it's Altered, Erased, and Reborn. <laughs> oh my gosh! And we're excited to have her with us. a great voice, uh, action, adventure, romance, or not romance, uh, platonic relationships, morality, uh, science. It's kind of got a little bit of everything into a fantastic mix of narrative energy. So this has been Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing, and this has been Jennifer Rush. Hi. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time.